Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. This morning we begin with a bit of a history lesson because some really important things happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And if you don't know this, it's actually a really fascinating set of events. How many, of you, how many of us here have heard of Alexander the Great? At the age of 20, Alexander the Great becomes the king of Greece and the Greek Empire. He attacks and defeats Persia. It's the end of the Persian Empire, and it's the beginning of the, the Greek Empire that spans... It's the biggest empire the world had seen at, in that, at that point. In fact, Alexander the Great is one of the big reasons why our New Testament is written in Greek. Now, by now, the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, and Alexander the Great leaves them alone. He's a, he's a fan. He's a supporter. He dies at the age of 30. He's never defeated in battle. He's an amazing conqueror and king. Everybody just thinks he's the, he's the greatest thing ever. But he had no sons. And so when he died, this massive empire was divided up between his four favorite generals. Well, a few generations go by, and there's some assassinations and some conspiracies and some bad stuff goes on. Lots of like Game of Thrones kinds of politics, okay? Lots of really bad stuff going on. And this really sick, evil king arises. His name's Antiochus Epiphanes, and he makes himself king over one of these areas of the empire, he, especially Judea and Palestine. And Antiochus hates the Jews, and he shuts down the temple. He forbids worship of Yahweh in the temple. He orders copies of the Torah to be burned. Uh, there's a story at one point he tortured seven brothers in front of their mother. She forced her to watch as, as, he, as he had her sons tortured in front of her. Antiochus reopens the temple with his own priest in charge, and he opens it as a, sh- as a shrine to the Greek god Zeus and sets up idols all over the place to Zeus, and his priests are making sacrifices of pigs on the altar in the Jerusalem temple. And a a blasphemy like this had never taken place. It had never been imagined before. And I wonder, what would you think, what if I told you that the whole thing was foretold centuries earlier in the book of Daniel? Would that blow your mind? Like, because it is. Here's what, um, here's what Daniel prophesied about it in, in just a little chunk of chapter 11. Now then, I'll reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power... His kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. A little bit later in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel, we read this. The next to come to power, after a few generations, will will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected, and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. He will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. His army will take over the temple fortress, 
pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Now, there's some of your versions of the Bible translate that as an abomination that causes desolation. Okay? Uh, Verse 32, he, this king, this despicable king, he will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and resist him. During the time of Antiochus, Epiphanes, the people of God, the Jews, they, they have this uprising. They follow the family of a guy named Judas Maccabeus. The story told in the book of Maccabees, if you have, a, if you have access to a Roman Catholic Bible, there's a couple of extra books. In, there's several extra books, but a couple of them are the first and second uh, letters of the Maccabees that tell the story of this revolution. But does that blow your mind that that was foretold centuries earlier in the book of Daniel? It does mine. Now, it's probably worth saying, full disclosure, most scholars believe that Daniel was written centuries before these things happened. There are some scholars who believe that the latter parts of the book of Daniel were written after, like after some of these events uh, happened, looking back on Alexander, looking back on Antiochus, and giving God credit for all of the things that happened. I can accept either view. I think people who have a high view of Scripture can, have a, can accept either explanation because the point of the story of Daniel, whether it's, whether it's looking forward to these things that haven't happened or it's looking back on things that have happened, the point is, the claim in the text is, God did this. Like, God is responsible. And you're like, can that be true? How, how can that be true? Because think of all the pieces of the puzzle that had to fit into place for, these, for this world history lesson to unfold the way that it did. Every circumstance had to happen just right. It all had to fall into place. All the timing had to be perfect. All the people involved had to make the right decision every time. And on and on, you can, you can think of the circumstances that had to be just perfect for all of this stuff to happen exactly as God said and as, exactly as God wanted it to. For this to unfold the way it's meant to, God had to ordain not just the outcome, but everything that happened all along the way. Now, I can't do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. Even the devil can't do that. Only an unstoppable, sovereign God can do that stuff. Only he can do those things. That means history, in some ways, history is a story of God's sovereignty. History is a story of God's sovereignty. Now, for the last couple of months, we've been working our way through the book of Daniel, okay? And uh, we've seen that our context has a lot in common with the context that Daniel finds himself in uh, centuries before Jesus. Babylon was a culture of death. In many ways, so is ours. Those were days of exile for God's people. In many ways, so so is our day. Their culture assumed that religious people or that religion itself is a problem, that, 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 uh, that religious people are the cause of many of society's ills, in many ways our culture feels the same. And it's been reassuring to know that God took care of Daniel in Babylon, that Daniel was able to flourish, and he was seen by God, and he was known by God. And if we're willing to make similar choices to, to Daniel, we can too. We can actually flourish here in Babylon, here in our own Babylon. So that's where we've been. I hope that this study has been helpful for you. It's been incredibly helpful for me. 
But today is our last study in the book of Daniel. And I wanted to end on a high note, on a note of encouragement and something that's strength, that gives us strength and encouragement and hope and peace, something that sustains our faith, that's able to sustain our faith through some of the hardest things that can happen. So we're going to review a little bit of Daniel. And, and I'm, what I'm going to suggest is that the reason he trusts God is because he's persuaded that God is absolutely sovereign. Okay? He trusts God because he, he believes that God is absolutely sovereign. It seems to me that is Daniel's big idea in this book. That's the reason he wrote it. That's where, and that's where we end this study, the sovereignty of, of God. Now, you might ask, and kids, if you've never heard the word sovereignty before, you might wonder, like, what do we mean when we say sovereign? Like, what, is, what does sovereign mean? When I say that God is sovereign, I mean what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 10, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent? Okay, that's what I mean by sovereign. I mean that nothing happens without his permission. I mean that God never fails. God never forgets. God is never vetoed. He's never overruled. God never gets it wrong. God is never missing some important, crucial piece of information that would have caused him to make a different decision or another outcome. God is never late. God is never lazy. In Scripture, God's sovereignty means that God gets God's way every time. That's what I mean by, by sovereignty. And if that makes you uncomfortable, which it may, if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm also going to argue that the alternative is unthinkable. Okay? Still, my opinion doesn't matter. What I believe about these things is completely irrelevant. The only thing that matters is whether or not I can demonstrate this from the book that God has given us, okay? That's what matters. You have no reason to care what Mike Molesky believes about the sovereignty of God unless it corresponds to what is written in the Bible that you own, the Bible in front of you. So that's where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to spend our time in the scriptures looking at the book of Daniel. We're going to revisit a, a little bit of what we've seen, and we're going to hear some more of Daniel's sovereignty stories. All right, so let's begin in Daniel 2. Quick review of Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar is freaked out because he had this dream, if you remember, of this statue with the different portions, and each portion represents a different empire that was going to come and go. But nobody at the time, nobody knew that. Nobody was able to interpret the dream except Daniel. Daniel comes along, he interprets the dream for the king. The king is thrilled, and, and, and Daniel is so excited, he praises God. He, de he declares, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep things and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And, and you're like, how can, how, can you, how can Daniel say things like that? How can he, how, who, who talks like that? Who gives God credit for those kinds of things that he, Daniel's giving God credit for? Only people who believe in a sovereign God talk like that, okay? Only people who believe in a sovereign God pray like that. Well, we, we saw in chapter 4 the story of Nebuchadnezzar being humiliated and humbled, uh, and, and which is a great demonstration of how God is sovereign over kings and empires, uh, and he, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, he had been taking credit for the greatness of, of Babylon. 
One day he's out strolling on his rooftop, taking credit and thinking, what an amazing king I am. And right after that, he loses his mind and he goes into the wilderness and he learns a lesson. Well, after he learns his lesson, he kind of comes back to his senses. And here's what we read in Daniel 4. My sanity returned. I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the peoples of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him. No one can say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? And now I, in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. There's this incredible sermon on, on sovereignty coming from, of all places, coming from Nebuchadnezzar. And, and that's the point. That's why Daniel writes it for us. There's a certain irony here, right? In this sermon on God's sovereignty being preached, of all people, by Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was the most amazing person ever. Well, there's another one, similar story in chapter 5, with Belshazzar at his party. And you remember there was this, this hand that appeared, and it scratched a message into the plaster on the wall. And nobody knew what it meant. But Daniel came along and he was able to explain that the warning means, Belshazzar, that your time is up. And after he explains it to him, he explains this, he shares this warning with Belshazzar. After we read that that very night, King Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, he was killed and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, I'm going to assume that that happened, that it happened as it's written. And it's like, how is that possible? That that vision can come, that Daniel can interpret it, and then that very night, Belshazzar will die. Only a sovereign God can announce the end of a king and the end of a kingdom and make it happen. Only a sovereign God can do that. Okay? Here's another one. This is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. This was chapter 6. King Darius, he, he was a cowardly king at the beginning. He has Daniel thrown into the lion's den because Daniel wouldn't refuse to worship his God. He wouldn't stop praying. Well, there's this miraculous rescue, if you remember. Uh, Daniel is, is not eaten by the lions. And after, Darius is so, his mind is so blown by this thing, he sends a message to every corner of the world. And his message says this. This is King Darius, okay? It says, peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear because the God of, because of the God, sorry, should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So again, we have this pagan king openly declaring that God is sovereign, that God does what God desires to do, that God, God gets his way, even with the kings of the world. Do you see the irony in this? There's a lot of irony there, and that's Daniel's point. That's why it's in here. Only a sovereign God can do that. 
Only a sovereign God can do that. Well, in chapter 9, we didn't get to spend a week on this, but Daniel 9 is a, this amazing, beautiful prayer uh, it, where, um, in fact, it, Daniel chapter 9 is where our confession prayer came from that we pray during communion. But in chapter 9, Daniel humbles himself. He confesses the sins of Israel. like He confesses on behalf of the, the entire people of Israel. And it's worth a look because here's what he says. O Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. Let me pause there. Even if that's all this said, that would be an amazing claim. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. I mean, you can take that to the bank. Don't you think? But that's not all he says. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. And then Daniel asks, verse 16, In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy mountain, all the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. We make this plea not because we deserve your help, but because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. For your own sake, do not delay. Oh, my God, for your people and your city, bear your name. Who prays like that? Who prays like that? Only someone who believes that our sin makes God look bad prays like that. Only someone who believes in a sovereign God prays like that. If Daniel has any doubt in his mind about God's sovereignty, he's not going to pray like this. He can't. It's like, suppose, suppose God hears this prayer. Suppose Daniel has in mind that God might hear this prayer and God might say, you know, I'd, I'd love to, but my hands, are tied because, my hands are tied because, you know, free will. If so, he can't answer a prayer like this. He can't answer any prayers. In that case, in fact, we don't have a God. Okay? Or suppose Daniel prays like this and God says, I would love to, but the future is a mystery. Who knows what could happen? Let's just wait and see. Let's hope for the best. That's actually not a God we can pray to. That's not the God of Daniel. Daniel's faith in the sovereignty of God doesn't keep him from prayer. Okay? Daniel's faith in the sovereignty of God is why Daniel prays. It's what gives him confidence that God can hear his prayer and that God can answer and can do something about it. That's Daniel 9. Well, here's the, the last one from the book of Daniel. It ends with this great promise of a resurrection. It's amazing resurrection that'll come in the end. Daniel sees a vision of it, and he says, at that time, Michael the archangel, who stands guard over your nation, will arise. There will be a time of anguish greater than any since uh, nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky. 
Those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. There's this, this, this note, though, to Daniel. But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end when many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. What's with this book Daniel talks about? What is that? Who can raise the dead? Who can do that? How can God make a promise like this? How can God give a vision like this to Daniel and call it like metaphorical or something like that? No, only a sovereign God can do this. Only a sovereign God knows when human history has reached that time. Okay? Only if he's the one who wrote the book can he say these things. None of this can happen unless God has the will and the ability, like the power, to carry it out. Okay? That's the God of Daniel. Now, there's another history lesson here. This one happens in November 2020. Some of you are aware of this story. Uh, Happened right here in Hamilton. My friends Jamie and Vanessa, Jamie and I went to university about the same time. We've been friends a really long time. They learn, they get this phone call that their son, Jude, he's walking home from school and he's hit by a car. He did nothing wrong. The driver was high. He was speeding, he was texting, he was running half the lights, he stopped, he, he stopped for half of the red lights, he ran half of the other red lights, he plows past the crossing guard and hits Jude as Jude is crossing the street. And a couple of days later, Jude is gone. Just gone. Now there's a part, there was a criminal trial that happened shortly after, and the police shared the traffic videos with Jamie. And um, it was clear that if any one tiny detail had happened differently in that story, Jude would still be alive. Any one small detail had happened differently, Jude would still be alive. Now, Jamie and Vanessa, they've read Daniel. And if you ask them, they'll say, of course, it was hell. It was excruciating. It was awful. They would do anything to have Jude back, of course. They would do anything to have their son Jude back. And they trust God with this. And they believe that God is sovereign. They believe that God is good. Not only because it's true from Scripture, and not only because it's true from their experience, but because they know that the alternative is a universe where God can't save Jude if he wants to. Imagine. Imagine a God who can't answer prayers. Imagine a God who didn't see it coming. Imagine a God who couldn't do anything about it, couldn't just push Jude aside two feet so that the vehicle misses him. Imagine a God who makes promises that he has no ability to keep. That's horrifying. That's a horrifying thought, and it's not true. It's not true. Only a a sovereign God can be trusted with your pain, and that's been the story of Jamie and Vanessa Strickland. That's their sovereignty story. I'll tell you another sovereignty story. This one is about my friend Patrick. This one happens in August 1989. Patrick is outside with his friends. He's on, uh, sitting on a picnic table on a summer evening, hanging out with his friends, doing absolutely nothing wrong. A drunk driver, uh, the driver was actually having an argument with his wife, not paying attention to the road. The car goes off the road, up the driveway, across the yard, plows through the picnic table with Patrick's legs on it, smashes through the picnic table, through Patrick's legs, and through the brick wall of the house behind them, pinning Patrick to it. He lost almost all of the blood in his body. The family 
much of the community is, is devastated, and Patrick loses his legs below the knees. Now today, Patrick plays wheelchair basketball. He is a Paralympic gold medalist. He's like crazy talented. Everything he touches, he is good at. He loves his wife. He's got three gorgeous kids. Patrick believes this is God's plan for his life. He believes this is God's plan for his life. And if you ask Patrick, he will tell you, as he has me many times, that as awful as his accident was, God can't plan the end and not plan the means. All right? That's the God of Patrick Anderson, and he would want you to know that. That's his sovereignty story. This next sovereignty story is our own. In uh, summer 2012, Heather and I and the girls are on vacation. Heather is pregnant. We're expecting our third child. Something's not right. We could tell something's not right, and we get back to the city, and we learn that we've lost the baby. What actually, what we learn is, it's what's called a molar pregnancy. And it's very rare. It happens to one in 10,000 pregnancies. Very, very rare. We're devastated at the loss of the baby. Just devastated. In fact, honest to God, there's not a day that goes by in my life 11 years later where I don't think about who that kid was. And what would he or she be like? How would he or she get along with our kids? And I, I know that there is an, an empty spot at our table where that kid belongs. We were devastated. But that wasn't the end, because a couple of months go by, and uh, doctors are following Heather very carefully, because there is an increased risk risk of cancer, but the odds are only 1 in 10,000. In other words, 1 in in 10,000 people who've had a molar pregnancy, which is 1 in 10,000, for 1 in 10,000 of those people, it becomes cancerous. And um, that was us. And Heather Molesky had chemotherapy in fall of 2012. She's there fighting cancer. In 2012, everything fell apart for us. And many of our very close friends, I mean, it wasn't just us. Many of other people I know had a very, very bad 2012. We joked with some of our friends. One of my best friends, his name is Eric. Some of you know him. He's, uh, he, he almost died that year from leukemia. We got to the end of 2012, and our joke was that we were going to have a New Year's party, and we would call it Go to Hell 2012. And, and many, of, many other people had a really, really bad 2012, and, and you can feel that. You can feel that and trust in the sovereignty of God. And we have no doubt that 2012 unfolded for us exactly as it was supposed to, as bad as it was. We have no doubt God could have saved that baby. We have no doubt God could have spared Heather from cancer. And we don't know the reasons. We don't know the reasons why he decided that that's what needed to happen, but that doesn't mean that there aren't any. Just because we don't know the reasons doesn't mean there aren't any. Doesn't mean that even if he told us what they are, that we could handle it. He hasn't promised us that we would know. One last uh, sovereignty story. This is Aunt Jean. And uh, she's not actually my aunt. She is my, my best friend, my best man. Uh, when his family adopted me, all of his aunts and uncles became my aunts and uncles. So this is Aunt Jean, and I saw her yesterday. I took this photo yesterday at a funeral for Uncle Ted, her, her brother. So she lives in Guelph. She's part of a church called Holy Rosary Catholic Church. And when she saw me yesterday, she was really, she gave me a great big hug. And uh, 
She told me that she listens to our sermons online every week. And I, was, I said, oh, you're the one. And she said, she was just so grateful for these, for getting to hear the gospel message. She said to me that, that it was just so helpful hearing the things that our church is teaching about Jesus. It's just helped her grow in her faith so much. And we had a, just a great chat about how encouraging it was to her. And you have no idea how much that encouraged me because, you know, some of you know, I put a lot of time and, and uh, effort into preparing and sharing these messages. And sometimes I wonder, like, is it having an effect? Like, is it, like, wrestling with good ways to articulate the gospel? Is that, is that a good use of Pastor Mike's time? Should I be doing other, other things? Is this actually helping anyone? And, uh, and I'm not even the only one. I know many of you labor in, in putting the gospel together and making the gospel known, and it's easy to question, is this actually helping anyone? And I want you to know, for Aunt Jean, it is. Okay, for Aunt Jean, it is, and she is so grateful for what we are doing as a church. She lives in Guelph. She goes to church in Guelph at a Roman Catholic church. She hears the gospel every week, and she is so grateful for what she's doing. And she could not have known how much I needed to hear that yesterday. She couldn't have known how much that would encourage me to hear. She, did, she couldn't have known, that, but God did. And and that was a sovereignty story that happened to me yesterday. Only a sovereign God can do that. Do you believe me? I hope you believe me on that. He's so good. He's so kind. He's so, um, so uh, amazing. And I have, and you have, many sovereignty stories that you could share about these things as well. Some of you are walking through a sovereignty story right now. And I know it. I know that you are. And I want you to know, like, I see you, and it doesn't even matter that I see you, but God sees you, and it's not a surprise to him. He's with you. And, um, and the point is this. It's not, it's not a comfort to suggest that we live in a world where things like this just happen, and they catch God by surprise. It's not a comfort, and it's not true. Okay? The God of Scripture, the God of Daniel, is a God who is absolutely sovereign. He accomplishes his purposes in history. He answers prayer. He keeps his promises to us. He keeps his promises. Promises like this. Romans 8, 28. This is very familiar to you. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You know, only a sovereign God can keep a promise like that. Do you know that? Only a sovereign God can keep that promise. And that's the God of Daniel. That's our God. That's our God. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.